It's one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Students are back, vacations are over, all of the school, various schools start back this week. In fact, you'll be happy to know that I contacted the chancellor. She has agreed to go ahead and cancel all breaks between now and next summer. <laughs> love it when you all are here, and I love it when uh, vacations are done and we get to gather together as the church family. Some of you have perhaps heard the name Bishop John Shelby Spong, especially here in North Carolina. You see, Bishop Spong was actually born in Charlotte and eventually went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This was deeply disturbing to me (laughs) until I found out after seminary in Virginia, he served with the Episcopal Church in Durham. Uh, The Blue Devils who messed him up. That explains a lot, you see. It's amazing to think that Spong was born in the same city 13 years after Billy Graham. Why am I bothered that Bishop Spong is a native Carolina son? Well, as a liberal Christian theologian, through his teaching in many books, Spong has called for a complete rethinking of the Christian religion. In fact, I would suggest that there is nothing in his teaching at all that is Christian. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says that Spong has denied virtually every Orthodox Christian doctrine. For example, Spong's 12 points of reform that he wrote back in 1998 call for the following. First, theism as a way of defining God is dead. Most theological God talk is today meaningless. I want you to understand what he just said. Theism is simply the belief that there is a God who is separate from his creation. Spong says that defining, uh, such defining of God as someone other is dead and meaningless. What does that even mean? How can you talk about God in non-God terms? Well, since God can no longer be conceived in theistic terms... It becomes nonsensical to understand Jesus as the incarnation of a theistic deity. Oh, now I know where you're going. Since we can't speak of God in non-God terms, then Jesus is not God. Third, the biblical story of, of the perfect and finished creation from which human beings fell into sin is pre-Darwinian mythology and post-Darwinian nonsense. In other words, no creation, no Adam and Eve, no fall into sin. Something we've made up. Fourth, the virgin birth. Do you see how he is meticulously and systematically dismantling the Christian faith? The the virgin birth understood as literal biology makes Christ's divinity impossible. The miracle stories of the New Testament can no longer be interpreted in (laughs) post-Newtonian. The guy's more concerned about science than like the Bible. Post-Newtonian world is a supernatural event performed by the incarnate deity since there isn't one. Number six, this is the reason I read this to you today. The view of the cross, he says, as uh, the, uh, the, the view of the cross as the sacrifice for the sins of the world is a barbarian idea based on primitive concepts of God and must be dismissed. The cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, the next year, 1999, 
Paul said that this image of Jesus as crucified and shedding his blood for our sins is so pervasive that, that, quote, one can hardly view Christianity apart from it. Duh. (laughs) He continues, I would choose to loathe rather than worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his own son. Seven, he denies the resurrection. Eight, he denies the ascension. Nine, he he denies the authority and inspiration of Scripture. Ten, he denies prayer. Eleven, he denies denies life after death. Well, not really life after death. He just denies hell and this idea of using guilt as a motivator. And twelve, he finally says something with which we can agree, except he messes it up. We all bear God's image, so there's no external description of one's being, whether based on race or ethnicity. We all agree. And sexual orientation, of course, he had to throw that in because he supports homosexuality. Listen, I listened to a couple of his talks available on YouTube. I do not recommend them to you, where he says, suggests that Christianity must be liberated from we evangelicals. He says, there's no need for people to be born again. All this born again nonsense does is keep you as infants so that the church can control you. So again, what of all that he teaches is in fact Christian? He denies everything Christian to include the reason I bring him up, to include the necessity of the crucifixion, the blood of Jesus, and the need for salvation. Thankfully, we are not a church who holds Spong's, who hold Spong's outright denial of the Christian faith. But I want you to know that there are people all over who say one way or another that the basic tenets of Christianity need to be dismissed. Students, there is a department called the philosophy of religion. I want you to understand it is not Christian. Most of them who teach in that department are not Christian. Not all of them. Most of them are not Christian, and they will simply seek to dismantle the Christian faith. Here's my question. How important is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Some suggest that it is just a myth at best and cosmic child abuse at worst. Shedding of his own blood for the sins of people. How important is that? Is that something that needs to be rethought, changed, completely discarded, abandoned? Think about it. We sing lots of of, of songs about the death and blood of Jesus. We did this morning. I talked about this in preparation for communion a few months ago. How odd is it that we as Christians talk so much about blood, sing about blood, drink as a symbol of blood, when we observe communion, you do understand that's what that little cup is, taught, is for, right? Think of the old hymns of the faith. What can wash away my sin? The answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. We're talking blood. That makes me white as snow. There is a fountain filled with blood. Come on. Do, do away with growing up in church and hearing all that. Sounds disgusting. Filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. Are you washed in the blood of the lamb, the soul cleansing? Notice the internal nature. Blood of the lamb, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. There is power in the blood. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. And by the way, Jesus' righteousness. (laughs) The fee band 
even has a contemporary Christian song entitled, The Beautiful Blood. Are you kidding me? It's kind of odd. So again, how important is the blood of Christ to our Christian faith? Is it dispensable, disposable, unimportant, outdated? Outmoded, a relic uh, of a mythological or legendary past, a pre-Darwinian barbaric idea. All of that's introduction. (laughs) In our study of the book of Hebrews, the author is proving that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Moses and Aaron. The Melchizedekian priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. The New Testament sacrifice is better than the Old Testament sacrifice says. The heavenly tabernacle is better than the earthly tabernacle. You see, all of those Old Testament things were simply types that pointed to their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And in our text today, he turns his attention to the sacrifice of Jesus, more specifically, the blood of Jesus and how it is infinitely better than the Old Testament blood sacrifices of bulls and goats. Why? Read the text with me. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and following say this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood, man, this is bloody, of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, if they sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see? Do you see why there is a need for a different sacrifice, a need for different blood, a new new covenant so that your conscience could be cleansed? In verses 1 to 10, he talked about the earthly tabernacle and the earthly worship, and he gets to the end of all of that wonderful worship, and he gets to the end of it in verse 9 and says, that would never cleanse your conscience. Are you Are you kidding me? All of those priests, all of those high priests, all of that worship, all of those sacrifices, all of the the, the animals, all of that blood, and we're still guilty in our conscience? A new covenant was needed so that your conscience could be cleansed, purified, perfected, so, so that forgiveness and cleansing is not just external, but internal, not just temporary, but eternal. The sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ, the new covenant, Jesus, just roll it all up in Jesus, is infinitely better than the old covenant, infinitely better than anything in this world, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, anything that any world religion has to offer. Jesus is it. I'll give you the outline. We're just going to go through this very quickly. A better tabernacle, a better sacrifice, a better salvation. No verses there because these truths are found throughout. Starting with a better tabernacle, though largely in verse 11. Remember, he just spent the ten, first 10 verses talking about the Old Testament tabernacle and, and prescribed worship regulations there, concluding with none of that perfected the conscience. When Christ appeared as a high priest... 
This has been a theme that he has been developing through the book. Look at it. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, all mention the high priest. The author of Hebrew develops this high priesthood of Jesus unlike any other. He replaces and fulfills the Old Testament high priest. They no longer exist because they have become obsolete. We have a great high priest who accomplished eternally what no one else could. When he appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, now your translation may have it of good things that have come. It's actually difficult to determine which is the best translation. They both have very good textual support, but in the end it doesn't really matter. They say basically the same thing. When Jesus came bringing the new covenant, he brought it with better promises, all the things that we've been talking about, all of the promises that have been fulfilled when Christ came through his death, burial, and resurrection and are yet to be fulfilled. We don't have it all yet. We're looking forward to a city whose builder and architect is God. That is yet to come. When he appeared at the incarnation, having accomplished his work of redemption, he didn't go the author says, to an earthly tabernacle. He didn't even go to an earthly temple. No, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. This is the point of this whole book. A, a, a better tabernacle. Everything about Jesus is better. He entered this, through this perfect tabernacle. What does that mean? Where is this perfect tabernacle? Well, we have to put a couple of truths together. In, in Hebrews 4, we find that Jesus passed through the heavens and then we also remember that the most holy place in the tabernacle was the place of God's special presence. So when we put those true, two truths together, we understand that Jesus passed through the heavens, the atmosphere and the space, to the, to the third heaven, Paul calls it, to the very presence of God. You see, the earthly tabernacle simply represented the true tabernacle where, G, where God resides with his special presence. And it is there that Jesus went. Jesus passed through the heavens in the dwelling place of God into the true and perfect tabernacle that is not made with hands, not of this creation, not animal skins, not acacia wood, not even gold, into the very presence of God, not made with imperfect hands. No, he offered a better sacrifice. And now the author focuses on, focuses on better blood. There is, in fact, a reason that we Christians sing. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein because blood drawn from bulls and goats did not ultimately provide atonement. But the blood of Christ did. Look at the various things the author says about this better sacrifice. Verse 12, not through the blood of goats and bulls. That's a reference to the day of atonement. We remember that on that particular, particular day, the high priest would first offer the blood of a, of a bull or a calf for his, for his own sins and the sins of his family. Then he would offer the blood of a, of, a, of a goat for the sins of the people. Really? Blood? Like blood? Yes. Barbaric. Outdated? Well, maybe outdated. Barbaric. The scripture says that there is life in the blood and God required the shedding of blood, a life taken for the forgiveness of sin. In fact, verse 22 will say, without the shedding of blood, without a death, that's the point, there will be no forgiveness. It is what God required. There must be a death for there to be forgiveness. So the high priest, notice plural, 
offered the blood of many, notice plural, bulls and goats. But Jesus entered the heavenly tabernacle, not with the blood of animals, but through his own blood. That is through his own sacrifice because it was infinitely better. Not only was the blood better because it was more effective, but also in verse 12, we see that he entered once for all. You see, he need only die once, not like the repeated sacrifices of the old covenant. And the old covenant sacrifice provided forgiveness for, for, for the people, that is the people of Israel for that year. But it had to be repeated the following year because the people kept sinning. And so and then the following year and the year after that, but, but the blood of Jesus was offered only one time for all time for all people. That is those living before, those living during, and those living after. That's us who would believe in Jesus for their eternal salvation. Well, that brings us quickly to our third point. You see, this is this, because Jesus brought his own blood, it provided a better salvation. Look at the end again of verse 12. Having obtained eternal redemption... It's the first time the author uses this word. He'll use it again a little bit later in this chapter. But it is a familiar concept to us. To redeem carries with it the idea of buying back. Buying back prisoners of war. Buying back freedom for slaves who who were in the slave market. I want you to understand that Jesus did both of those things for us. We were, in fact, prisoners of war. Held captive by the enemy of our souls to do his will. If, if you don't know Jesus this, this morning as your Savior, I want you to understand something. I want to say it very clearly and very gently, but very, but, but very strongly. If you do not know Jesus, you are held captive by Satan. But Jesus rescued us. He, he, brought, he bought our freedom as prisoners. But not only that, not just prisoners of war, we were also slaves to sin. Every one of us, born sinners, anyone who has ever had children, know this truth. (laughs) And there is nothing that we could do to buy our freedom from sin. So Jesus did it for us. By his blood, he purchased our freedom from sin, by the way, and made us slaves. We went from one slavery to another. It's freedom from slavery to sin to slavery to righteousness. It's found in Romans chapter 6. And please do not miss that this is an eternal redemption, an eternal redemption. I have two questions to ask you. First, when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, which of your sins did he die for? See how, see how important that question is? Say, so, well, he, he died, for the, I, I guess, for the sins that I asked him to forgive me when I got saved. Well, what about the sins you committed the next day, the next week, the next month? Did he die for those two? Yes, he did. And second question, how long is eternal anyway? It is forever. It does not end. When Jesus provided our redemption, it was eternal. When we were saved, we were saved for eternity. You need not ever wonder whether or not you've lost your salvation. Jesus freed you from captivity. That's what redemption means, forever. This is great news. Look at verse 13 again. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, that's weird. Ashes of a heifer. 
had to look that up. That was a young calf who's not, or a young cow, female cow that's not given birth to a calf yet. Ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify or make holy for the cleansing of the flesh. Stop right there. What is this heifer thing? Well, Numbers chapter 19, instructions are given to offer a red heifer as a sacrifice. Then the priest, as he burns it up, would take the ashes. He burns it with cedar and also hyssop, which is a mint, and red scarlet. And, and he would mix it with water, and it would become a purifying agent. So, for example, if you became, I don't know, ceremonially unclean. For example, if you touched a dead body, you would go to the priest who would sprinkle you with the ashes to cleanse you. But do not miss... This was a ceremonial cleaning because it was ceremonial uncleanness. But he, he mixes the red heifer with the blood of bulls and goats. He is suggesting that it is all ceremonial. It is all an external cleansing. How do I know that? Because of its effectiveness. Yes, you were ceremonially clean for a while. It even provided temporary atonement for sin, but it could do nothing about the inside. Remember verse 9, it could do nothing about your conscience. The author then goes from the lesser to the greater argument, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, that's likely the Holy Spirit, who came on Jesus at his, at his baptism and enabled him for the work of redemption. This offering came through the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand that your salvation was enacted by the triune God. The Father's, it was the Father's plan carried out by the Son, empowered by the Spirit, and applied to you, by the way, by the Spirit. This was not just animal blood, by the way. This, because animal blood, we've seen, will not work. It will not cleanse you from the inside. No, this was the blood of Christ offered through the eternal spirit. Notice Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. And we, as we've read through the Old Testament, we remember every time they selected an animal, it had to be an animal without blemish. Why? Because that animal was a type pointing to Christ. And Jesus, when he came, had to be without blemish. What does that mean? He was sinless. He was spotless. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He had to be in order for his sacrifice to be acceptable. It would be like this. I've shared this thought before. Let's suppose that you and I robbed a bank. We, we, things got rather heavy. I killed a teller, teller, but you killed the security guard and the bank customer in the process. We're captured, we're accused, we're trialed, and we're found guilty. Sentence is passed. We killed three people together, and we get the death penalty. Let's say that for whatever reason, I really like you. So I say to the judge, listen, since I'm going to have to pay uh, to die anyway, wh why don't I die for my friend Ralph here? I'll take his place. I'll go ahead and die. Let him go. The judge would laugh you out of the courtroom. Why? You can't die for someone if you're both guilty. Exactly. Jesus was without blemish. He was guiltless. He, the guiltless, took on the sin of the guilty, which was acceptable to God. And having done so, he accomplishes something the blood of animals could never do. He cleansed us from the inside out. He cleansed our consciences. What does that mean? It means, people, that we can have peace. We can have eternal peace. We can have internal peace. We can have real peace because our sins have been removed. We need no longer carry the guilt of our sin. Is guilt real? Yes. Sorry, Spong, guilt is real. Is it important? Yes. 
But as believers in Jesus, listen to me. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I'm saying it again. Your guilt is gone. Your conscience has been cleansed. It no longer need accuse you because of the provisions of the new covenant. You see, there is a reason that Christians sing. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their what? They're guilty. Stain, do you believe that? Our consciences have been cleansed, perfected, purified. We no longer need to carry the guilt of our sin. It has been removed. You see, there's a reason the scripture says that he buries our sins into the depths of the deepest sea to be remembered no more. There is a reason this scripture says that our sins, I love this one, that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. You ever notice that? Do you ever notice he doesn't say as far as the north is from the south? Do you ever wonder why? Well, because that's measurable. There's a north pole and there's a south pole. And let's say I start at Santa's house and start going south. When do I start going north? When I reach the South Pole, 13,000 miles later, and now I'm going north. And when I, now I'm going south. And are, are you with me? Okay. When I, uh, there is a definable, definable, measurable distance from north to south. But now when I start going east, when do I start going west? Geologically challenged, aren't you? Never! <laughs> That's the point. I know that we refer to it as the Far East, right? But is it really? I mean, what do they call us? The Far West? Doesn't it really depend on which direction you go? If we start heading to California to go to the Far East, have we really gone to the Far West? Again, geologically challenged. Okay. The point is, this does not make sense. The distance from east to west is immeasurable. They never actually meet. That's the point. That's how far away your sins have been removed. Our consciences are cleansed from dead, lifeless works of selfish sin, and we are freed to serve the living God. I'm done. I'm out of time. Listen to me for a couple more minutes. You have been eternally saved consciences cleansed, sin removed. Why? What's the text say? To serve. So, have you ever thought to yourself too broken, too sinful, too unclean, too imperfect to serve God? I could never volunteer for this or that ministry. I've been too bad. I've been too sinful. Scott, you don't know me. You don't know the bad things that I have done. And so you find yourself sitting here on Sunday mornings. You maybe even get involved in some other ministries as a participant, but never a servant. Because you see yourself too evil. Listen carefully. There is no forgiven saint who was ever so horrible a sinner, who was ever so horrible a sinner that he or she cannot serve. Ask Saul, who became Paul. Ask John Newton, who, who was a slave trader, who became a pastor and wrote Amazing Grace.
Now, to be clear, I want to say this very gently. If you apply to serve in our children's or youth ministry, we do, you fill out an application, and we tell you in the application, we're going to run a background check. Is that because we don't think that you're good enough if you have some kind of criminal record? No, that's not the point. We care about our children, yes, but we care about you too. And so we do not want to place you in unnecessary, unnecessarily and foolish temptation. Why would we do that? So for example, if you're that lady that I read about just this week, I think somewhere in the Midwest, who has been convicted of embezzlement four times, I get two, but four, who would hire her? <laughs> Listen, if she comes to church here, we're probably not going to have her count the offerings. <laughs> she owes a quarter of a million dollars in restitution. But if she knows Christ, she can serve. And so can you. When I walk with you, we want to encourage you. We want to hold you accountable. But together, brothers and sisters, we have been cleansed. We have been forgiven so that we can serve the living God.